Hello, and welcome to this episode of Right Now at the Writer's Colony. This is a podcast that connects you to writers of all genres and backgrounds. I'm your host, Joy Clark, editor of Emerge Magazine and marketing specialist at the Writer's Colony at Derry Hollow. The Writer's Colony at Derry Hollow is a writing residency whose mission is to provide uninterrupted writing time and space to writers of all levels and genres. The Writer's Colony at Derry Hollow is located in the lush, green, historic village of Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Today, I'll be sharing a conversation with Martha Ann Toll about her novel, Three Muses, out just last month from Regal House Publishing. Martha Ann Toll writes fiction, essays, and book reviews. Her debut novel, Three Muses, won the Petrichor Prize for Finely Crafted Fiction. Toll is a book reviewer and author interviewer at NPR Books, The Washington Post, Point Magazine, The Millions, and elsewhere. She also publishes short fiction and essays in a wide variety of outlets. She's recently joined the board of directors of the Penn slash Faulkner Foundation. I hope you enjoy. Well, hello, Martha, and welcome to the Right Now podcast. How are you doing this morning? Hi, Joy. Um, I'm great. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Thank you very much. Well, I'm so excited to be talking to you. I really, really loved reading through the three muses. Um, Full disclosure, historical fiction is not usually my favorite genre, but I was really, really surprised by how easy it was to fall into this novel and how just eloquently it was written. So I'm excited to hear more about it. Uh, But to get started, I would like for you to tell us a little bit more about your relationship to the Writer's Colony at Derry Hollow. And um, what was your residency like when you came and stayed with us? Oh, I loved it. So I, um, let's see, I was at Derry Hollow in January of 2020, which we all know is Mm. very, very shortly before the pandemic, you know, at the Mm -hmm. time we're starting to hear a little tiny bit of something in China. So I wasn't even worried about the pandemic, mm-hmm. but um, I ended up being the only person there. I love winter residencies because mm-hmm. they're quiet and um, the town of Eureka Springs is beautiful. It's great to take walks. And I um, absolutely loved it. I was actually working on a different novel from Three Muses, um, because I was already submitting three muses at that time, but I, I loved it and I hope I can come back. Oh, well, we hope you can come back too. And that is such a good point about winter residencies. I've never thought about it that way. Um, yeah. Well, let's jump into talking about the three muses. So the three muses, it alternates between two primary characters. Although I will say there are a lot of really rich secondary characters that I loved, um, especially Maya. Uh, she was <laughs> one of my favorites. So when you began the novel, uh, did you know that you would be writing from two perspectives? And can you tell us what it was like alternating between two very different characters and their perspectives when writing? 
Yeah, you know, I always had those two characters. Um, the first one is John. He was uh, born Yonko in Germany, and um, he is um, basically in line to the gas chamber when his mother tells the SS officer that he can sing, and so she essentially saves his life by having him entertain the commandant, who is, in fact, Yonko's killer. When Yonko gets to America, he renames himself John on the theory that everyone in America is named John. So I always knew it was going to be about him, and I knew it was going to be about a ballerina. Um, her name started out as Catherine Silman, and her abusive choreographer, whose name is Boris Yanikov, renames her Katya Simonova, which was quite common during the 1950s. And the hope is you're sort of transmitting this idea of a big fancy Russian ballerina. So I always knew I would have two perspectives. I did um, play around for a while whether one person should tell the story and sort of narrate both perspectives. That definitely did not work. I had a really, really brief period of time trying um, to tell it in the first person through John's voice. That that also didn't work. So I landed on two perspectives, which I think we call it close in third person. They don't, they're not omniscient, but they can, um, but the narrator, but they each, they don't actually narrate. It's narrated in the third person, but it's according to what John and Katya can see. Yeah. Uh you know, that absolutely uh, makes sense. And I, I want to touch on something um, that you kind of brought up here, which is that these characters, they are really working through the tension between their past and their present. Um, so that's really conveyed through the fact that they both have two names, a current name that they're using and a past name that not as many people might know about. So uh, first of all, I thought that using those, the use of having two names for each of the characters was really wonderful. And it kind of created this connection between them, even though they're not very similar in their past and their present. I really um, appreciate that. And um, I just kind of wanted to say, um, I kind of think it's cool that they have two names too. And what I like about it is that John chose his name he renames himself from Yonko Stein to John Curtin, but the person who gives him the spelling of his last name spells it wrong, even mm -hmm. though John was thinking, wow, I'd love to draw a curtain across my past. I never want to think about it again. Whereas Catherine de Katya had no agency in choosing her name. It was her choreographer that chose mm -hmm. it. That's very, and that's very true and very telling, um, especially as you get deeper into the novel of what they're each sort of trying to disentangle themselves from. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So one thing I found very interesting, you know, the, the first half of the novel really delves deep into the past, um, especially the past of these two main characters. So as a writer, what was it like trying to balance the past and the present and, and make sure the novel didn't tilt too far in either direction? 
Well, that's a great question. And there was a lot of trial and error. I started writing this book in 2010 and I lost track of how many times I revised it. But um, I had much, much, much more about the past. Um, a lot of backstory for each of them. And at some point I began to realize that the backstory was slowing the book down. Also, I received early advice to tell the story completely chronologically, which ended up not working. Mm. So ultimately, I did cut a lot of backstory. Um, and then um, a teacher I had, Paul Harding, who's a wonderful writer, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for Tinkers. He has a great maxim, which is backstory is needed. So at some point along the way, I did a revision where I cut as much backstory as I could, and then spliced it in later, um, again, as needed. Mm. What an interesting process. And I think that it, it has worked so well because the novel really does flow. Um, and I don't think that there is too much backstory now. I think there, there's just the perfect amount. Uh, one, a quick little follow-up question I had. So the novel opens on the ballet, The Three Muses, which really sets up the themes of the novel. Um, and I am curious, did you know that you were going to open with that ballet or is that something that came about in the revision process? Oh my gosh, yeah, that <laughs> was torturous. Um, I spent a bunch of years writing this novel with the very famous well-known ballet, Swan Lake at its center. Mm. And I realized, um, I spent a lot of time researching Swan Lake and watching it on YouTube. And at some point I realized I'm gonna make some mistake or some series of mistakes and it's gonna distract a reader who really knows Swan Lake. Right. And I felt that it was confining. Mm -hmm. So I also began to realize um, as a technical matter, um, you don't wanna distract your reader from the story and the Swan Lake story is a different story from what mm -hmm. I wanted in Three Muses. So I chose Three Muses as the centerpiece ballet. And I wondered if this is a good time to just spend a minute describing what the Three Muses are. Yes, please do. Thank you. So um, I came across this tradition from the region of Boeotia in Greece. Um, it was part of the ancient Greek myth tradition but instead of the nine muses that we learn about in school, this tradition had only three muses. And the three muses were song, mm -hmm. discipline, which includes the meaning of a priest preparing for prayer. So it has a spiritual component to it and memory. And those three muses really spoke to me. Um, John is loosely associated with song and although music and song is something that is extremely comforting and gives us great joy for John, it's incredibly fraught. Mm. And he um, has a very fraught relationship with music because he was forced to sing for his commandant. Mm. So when he falls in love with Katya who makes her living and her work is intimately tied with music that sets up a difficult conflict for John. Mm. Katya is loosely associated with discipline um, because that's what you need to become a ballerina. And memory is meant to overshadow the whole book. It's memory is the strongest of the muses. 
and memory um, is something that we all grapple with, but particularly people who have had trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, I really love that. I had no idea where the origin uh, of that came from. And it's so interesting to hear. Um, and I think that it's really lovely how these three themes are set up and then really deeply explored throughout the contents of the novel. So I think it's actually a a really good moment to talk about the characters' professions. Uh, Katya is a ballerina and John is a psychiatrist. Um, For me, I mean, both of those occupations have a lot of discipline built into them. And I'm really interested in how much research you had to do into the world of psychiatry and ballet while writing this novel, because I think you captured both of those worlds with so much detail that it felt very, very real. Um, Well, I really appreciate that you mentioned that they each have discipline, because I always meant for the three muses to sort of um, imbue each character. I mean, Mm. they're not just one thing and as human beings we are complex and we hold a lot of contradictions um let's see john um trains as a psychiatrist that seemed like a natural thing for him to do because he he is a person of great compassion and empathy and has suffered tremendous loss by losing his whole family um as a young teen um and so he is randomly he's at a he's adopted by a family in new york um barney and selma cats they're a couple who lost their only son in the war of sicily during the battle of sicily during world war ii so they essentially adopt john and give them everything they would have given their own son including um they stake him to medical school and and a friend of theirs randomly says to John, you know, you should become a psychiatrist. And that suggestion is based on the fact that John has suffered so much that he needs to heal himself. Part of psychiatric training is you must go through your own therapy before you can be licensed. And I love that um, the healer has to heal first. I didn't do a ton of research into psychiatry, and I'm pretty sure that the psychiatrist, who is John's training psychiatrist, his name is Dr. Roth, is very unconventional. Um, (laughs) He does a lot of things that might horrify (laughs) psychiatrists. I did have the manuscript read twice by a friend of mine who's an analyst, who also knows a lot about the history of psychiatry. Um, And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't anything that was jumping out that was gonna make him, you know, like, wow, that's just so unorthodox. We would never do that. Um, I think I probably did some research around shock therapy, which John does not have, but it was widely used in the 50s. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody who's read their Sylvia Plath knows that. It was a pretty horrific treatment. I think it's a more benign treatment now. I think um, the industry has learned how to titrate it. As to ballet, I studied um, throughout my childhood. I absolutely loved it. I learned a lot that I never forgot, um, but I have no ballet talent. (laughs) So I didn't end up pursuing it because the school where I studied was professionally focused and they were pretty clear i had no future um but one of the wonderful things aside from this you know really my love of having that full body workout 
at the bar and in the center. Um, one of the other things that happened at the school is I got to watch the rehearsals of the working professional dancers. And I found that completely wow. So I've always followed ballet. I go to a lot of ballet. I pay attention um, somewhat to, to the profession. I mean, I'm not expert by any means. Mm -hmm. um, I read a lot. And I've been reading more after the book came out because there's some point during a novel when um, I think other novelists feel this way when you actually need a, a bit of a brick wall. <laughs> You're not getting influenced by what other people are writing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> books now <laughs> oh, no that completely makes sense I mean I I can't imagine but I do think your love for ballet comes through um and I say this as someone who I'm not particularly familiar with ballet I, I've only ever been to one ballet in my life um and I hadn't really thought much about the art form but this novel really immersed me in that world and now I I'm curious about it and would love to go to more well I'm really happy to hear that and I think one of the wonderful things about um reading a novel is getting immersed in an in a world that you never thought about or that you never knew and um so I'm happy to hear that and the book is designed to um, be clear to somebody who doesn't know anything about ballet. I do want to say that today in Lit Hub, which is a wonderful publication um, about books and writing, I have a curated list um, of ballet books in case you're interested in oh, wow. it's memoir and uh, fiction. And it's today is September 29th when we're taping this. So that list ran today in Lit Hub, if anybody any of your readers are interested. Also, it will be on my website, um, which is the same as my name, but I just, I did, it was fun putting together a list of books that I love. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I am definitely curious. And what I'll do is post the link to that list in the podcast episode um, so that anybody who would like to view it can. I love that. Thank you. Of course. I'm very, like I said, I mean, this really made me interested in the world of ballet. So that's so exciting that you've uh, compiled that list for everyone. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to ask about the three muses is something that, so when you get to the end of the book, there's an author's note. Um, and in it, you acknowledge that this book was partially inspired by ind real individuals in your life, although the story is completely fictional. So would you tell us a bit more about where the inspiration for the Three Muses came from and uh, what made you decide to tell this particular story? Yes, thank you. I am um, going to say um, I actually took the the out of my title. So I the book is called Three Muses because I wanted to get readers right into it right away with the title. Mm -hmm. um, that said, in the author's note, I acknowledge two people who I was very close to, um, a family friend and my mother's cousin, who's obviously a cousin of mine, both of whom were Holocaust survivors. And I'm of an age that grew up with um, relatives who are Holocaust survivors one generation away. I also, uh, coming from a very, very secular Jewish family, um, in some ways, the Holocaust was my first introduction to Judaism. Um, my mother's cousin lost, was able to escape Germany with um, their grandmother 
but she lost the rest of her family at Auschwitz. And I always knew that, but the older I got, the more unbelievably shattering I realized that was. Mm -hmm. We think of a death in a family, a murder in a family, um, Holocaust survivors, of which there were very, very few, often lost, you know, 30, 40 members of their extended family. Um, they were completely, these were people who were completely integrated to, into their societies the way we are in America as Jewish people or as any other people who were, whose lives were completely destroyed for basically an accident of birth. Um, as I got older, I began to understand how close the Holocaust was to my own life and to um, really try to get my arms around it, which I don't think any human is capable of doing. The numbers are too huge. The crime is too massive. It is so gigantic. And we hear about Auschwitz and the gas chambers were less publicized is, you know, the Eastern Front where whole villages were just being gunned down long before the gas chambers started uh, for no reason other than the fact that they were Jewish. And um, the losses are so terrible. So as a novelist, I think that we sometimes tell a story more meaningfully if we can focus on one person and what that one person's experience was so we can try to get to know them and extrapolate out from there. And I also had a really, I was really, really motivated to tell this story, to tell it forward because we are um, now seeing the last of Holocaust survivors die out and we need to tell this story. I mean, you don't, it's really imprinted on you when your relatives come to Thanksgiving and they have um, numbers tattooed into their wrists and you know where it comes from. So there's, I mean, Jewish people have been in America since before the American Revolution, but many, 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 many Jewish people in America um, have relatives who were murdered. And I think, um, coincidentally, the Ken Burns documentary that just came out that mm -hmm. ran about Jews in America shows the American recalcitrance and bigotry that prohibited um, literally millions of people from being saved. Yeah. Thank you so much for going into that and sharing that. And I think, you know, I hearing that you spent so long writing, working on this novel and such care writing it makes sense when I hear what a close, uh, what, what an in, intimate and close place this comes from for you. Um, and it's also such an important thing to write about right now. I completely agree. Yeah, I wanted to say a word about that. I, I appreciate, um, you know, how generous you are. I, I also have deep concerns about the state of our world because mm. bigotry is really, really dangerous and it has very dangerous consequences. And we are living in a time in the United States when bigotry is on the very scary upswing. And also we see genocides happening still all over the world. So I think we have to educate each generation as they come of age. Absolutely. I, th I mean, and I think that education can come through many forms. Um, and one of the most powerful tools I think that we have is art. And so it's really wonderful and sort of comforting and hopeful to see people making art about these subjects still and trying to educate and inform. 
Yeah. Um, one thing I I see is that others are saying, you know, other reviewers and other places I've seen Three Muses mentioned, there are a lot of different perspectives people have on it. Um, and some even go so far as to call it a romance, which there is a romance at the heart of the novel. But for me, Three Muses was much more than just a romance. And, and there's these other components that really stuck out to me. Um, in particular, one of the most moving parts for me was John dealing with survivor's guilt and with trauma. So I was really surprised at the twists and the turns that the plot took that allowed us to see all these different angles on the characters and all these different sides of them and take an even more close look at how they were changing and evolving throughout the course of their lives. So without spoiling too much for those who might not have read the book yet, can you tell us what it was like developing this plot? And did you always know how the novel was going to end or were there surprises for you in the writing process? There were definitely surprises for me in the writing process. And I'm sure that I went through at least four endings. <laughs> so that's the short answer. I, I had a pretty good idea about plot from the get-go. However, it definitely evolved. I mean, I had probably a year or two when John was the father of two children. And um, that just didn't work for any number of reasons. But one reason was I got really interested in the kids and they started to take over the novel. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not what this novel is about. Um, so the plot took a while to develop. Um, and it's really interesting that you mentioned your point about romance. I think as a writer, I never thought of any kind of what genre this would be in. And I'm still scratching my head about characterizing it as a historical <laughs> because mm -hmm. I never thought of it that way either. I mean, it is historical. It takes place in a, in real places in a real time in history. Um, but I think, you know, it's not unusual for novels to cross um, boundaries in terms mm -hmm. of, of what they're about. Um, and I think it's a novel that is deeply about love in many kinds of permutations. Yes, I agree with your statement. It's it's about romance, but I think the the, the a deeper concept of love is at play in this novel. Mm. Yes, I a whole I love the way you just stated that a, a deeper concept of love, um, a more a more powerful and more compassionate, I think, understanding of love than just romance um that's really well put thank you well I hope I hope that's a reader's take from it but you never know you know writing is a partnership with a reader and it's up to the reader to interpret yes. what they read obviously yes I mean then that's a, why I mentioned that it's been surprising for me to see others uh, other reviews and other takes because I had such a, a particular experience and for me at, at the heart of the novel was this recovery from trauma, this like processing of trauma and, and sorting through it and then finding a way to move forward. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure other readers had other, <laughs> other elements that they really connected to and, and got from it. So I suppose that's the interesting thing about that relationship between writer and reader. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, well, thank you so much for delving deeper into Three Muses with us. I want to just, again, highly recommend uh, for those of you listening who haven't read Three Muses, I think that this is a book that everyone um, of every background and every age, I think you would find something in it to connect to and to learn from. And it's just really beautifully written. Joy, I just want to thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And of course, I really, really appreciate your kind words about my book. And I, just a real shout out to Derry Hollow for mm. you know, giving writers a place to um, get in the zone and have a beautiful experience. So thank you on all fronts. Of course. I Derry Hollow, it's special. And I'm I'm so happy to be a part of it because you know it's <laughs> like the incredible quote by um Virginia Woolf, I believe, about having a room of one's own. I think just having that space to create is so, so important. Um, and so it's nice to be connected to something like that. Absolutely. So to end the podcast, I want to really ask sort of a, a more lighthearted, fun question. <laughs> um, so as a writer, could you tell me a little bit about what kind of Space you like to write in and uh, what kind of setting so is there a particular time of day a place um do you use any props or tools to have on hand as you write um what does that setup look like that ideal setup look like for you <laughs> that is a fun question um well before we went on air joy got to see the that, that I have my own study in my house, which is um, really, truly, a la Virginia Woolf, a tremendous gift. So I do have a room of my own, which I'm extremely grateful for. It's usually a complete mess <laughs> with books all over the place. My husband always afraid he's gonna kill himself walking in with the piles. Um, and early on, I'm trained as a classical musician. I always listen to music and I found that I was so distracted and by the music that I was writing all this emotional, like kind of drivel basically, I was getting way too emotional. So I now write in complete silence. And that's a little surprising to me, but it's true. Um, and I like, so I like, I have to have a lot of quiet and I prefer to write in the morning, um, but the, with my launch, which has been very, very thrilling, um, life's a bit chaotic. So I just try to write every day. And I believe that um, writing begets writing. So I'm also a reviewer and a critic. So mm -hmm. I feel like writing a book review is still exercising your writing chops. Um, and I'm, I, I need, um, I prefer to write with bigger chunks of time because it takes me a little while to get into the zone. Oh, that's very, I always love hearing about um, everyone's processes because every writer I've learned is really unique. Um, so thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Martha, for, for joining us today, for telling us um, more about Three Muses, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. You too, and thanks a million. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Right Now at the Writer's Colony. If you'd like to join the Right Now Book Club and read along with us for our next book club pick, just follow us on social media and we'll be announcing that soon. The Writer's Colony at Dairy Hollow has a presence on Instagram, Facebook, 
Twitter, and YouTube. And you can find easy links to all of those on our website at thewriterscolony.org.